0: All of you on the good earth. On one. In. And one small
1: step for man, one giant leap for man.
0: to another fun-filled adventure here on the Talking Space Podcast. I'm Gene McCauley. I'm here with the lovely and talented Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. How are you doing this fine evening? Doing well, thank you, Gene. That's grand. Just to let everybody know, Mark is uh, burning some midnight oil uh, on his, uh, his day job. He'll be back with us next time. Sawyer is uh, just kind of chilling out. He's got some stuff going on. And our dear, dear friend Cassie, why don't you tell us what Cat's been up to of late and why she's not here today?
2: Well, Kat is finishing up her immersion program in Turkey. She's been learning the Turkish language and living with a family there. She was kind enough to call in for (coughs) our most recent episode, but she's about to come back to the States. So (laughs) we're letting her worry about taking tests and travel and everything. And soon she will be calling us from near the University of Alabama, where she'll be pursuing her PhD. So congratulations to Kat for finishing up this intense program and starting a whole new journey.
0: Indeed. And, and just uh, an FYI, Kat was sicker than, a, than three dogs last time she called <laughs> us here. So uh, again, she was real, really a grand trooper, and I have to thank her for that and looking forward to having her back. Anyway, well, let's get on with it because, wow, we've got a heck of a lot of, lot to talk about here. The Dawn mission, those little white spots that we're seeing all over the place on that one particular mysterious crater named, I'm probably going to botch the name here, but Occator, O-C-C-A-T-O-R, or Octor, I'm sorry. We still don't know what these bright spots are. I think they've kind of ruled out ice, or at least almost ruled out ice, And uh, also we've discovered a mountain not too far away, which is about four miles, yeah, four miles high. And uh, a lot of the uh, media out there have been kind of, well, having a little fun with uh, the mountain there, almost characterizing it. In fact, I'm looking at two uh, media outlets right now. One was the Latin Post. And the other, I believe, is CNET. And they're both kind of sort of characterizing this thing as, as it was some sort of pyramid. And unfortunately, some of the major outlets have been kind of taking that word and running with it. It's almost like when Chaparrali discovered canali on Mars. You know, canali meaning grooves or channels. in in Italian, and everybody ran with that and said, oh, canals, and everybody thought, you know, Mars (laughs) has got loaded with canals. Well, now we find this thing that kind of looks kind of interesting, but everybody's now characterizing it as this mysterious pyramid, and, of course, pyramid implies something (sighs) man-made. Yeah, not quite, guys. It it is just pyramid-shaped, don't worry. Cassie, why don't you just go ahead and chime on in here and, and kinda you'll know, pick up the ball here a little bit and play with it because this has just been a lot of some of these websites are just off the wall with this.
2: Well, I think that you see this with almost anything to do with space. Okay, look at all the, I guess, alien conspiracy theories about the pyramids on this planet that we uh, know are. So it's kind of inevitable. We've seen the same thing when they found the blueberries on Mars. Uh How could they be so round? And there's this desire often with humans to sort of see the universe as chaos and things that we create as having (laughs) order. But... The truth is, there's so many things we have found that look really mysterious at first, and then we learn more about them, and they start to make sense, and they increase our understanding of the universe through the very fact that we may not understand how something formed, but as we figure it out, we figure out more about how the universe is formed. So I can't wait to find out more about all of these things that were in the video and especially to learn about what, you know, is causing the look of Okater. But I think we're in a little bit of a holding pattern on that. And until then, people are going to be projecting all kinds of stories onto anything that even vaguely resemble something that was created and assigning more meaning to it than perhaps it
0: deserves. I still say chill out. We just got there. Exactly. And (laughs) that's
2: what I'm saying. It's going to take time for us to find answers.
0: Yeah, just stay tuned, folks. Just like uh, with New Horizons, just stay tuned. Uh, There's a lot more coming from both dawn and new horizons so again we just got there in both cases there's going to be some really cool stuff coming down uh if you want to keep an eye on what's happening with dawn go to dawn.jpl.nasa.gov and just keep in tune and and pay attention because some really really grand stuff is coming on that front absolutely so i guess speaking of asteroids We've got another little piece of information to talk about concerning concerning asteroids and possibly using them as fuel depots. There was an interesting article in, that appeared in Forbes uh, not too long ago indicating that a geologist by the name of Leslie Gersh, who is out of the Missouri University of Science and Technology, this summer is constructing a lab that will go ahead and test to find out if asteroids can actually be used as fuel depots if there are enough chemicals over there on an asteroid to create fuel while you're en route to say Mars or something like that if you could do that and make sure that you know you don't have to carry all the fuel with you you can go ahead park yourself next to an asteroid take a fueling uh line and fuel your vessel with that and keep moving on. <laughs> just well, think of what I, just think of what that could open up.
2: Oh, this could be a whole industry unto itself, really, in the future. It's this is really exciting because it will be a process if this is possible. But like they say in the Forbes article, to process the fuel, the rocks would need to be bagged and baked. The hot right. gases coming off the meteorites trapped inside the bag could be sent to space refineries or siphoned directly into fuel tanks designed to be meteoric gas compatible. So this could be like this could even be like sort of a small business in space kind of thing because <coughs> depending on the methods that end up working, it's the kind of thing that you'd want to you know maybe do in situ, and it's really exciting. It says research suggests some of the rocks have as much as twenty-two percent water in them, and gases like carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, or carbon monoxide; those are all excellent candidates.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I'm just thinking, what uh, deep space industries or planetary resources? If they, if we actually get through some of the, yes. some of the the nonsense that's in these, uh, in these things. Uh, what that could open up for them? Not only they could theoretically become the Exxon and Shell and and all that of the solar system. I so. can't
2: wait until somebody copyrights the
0: term gastroid. <laughs> well, let me call my attorney right now. Hmm, there, there's a there's a thought for you. <laughs> So, Cassie, we had an interesting little article that came by through CBS News.
2: Yeah, I just happened to catch it because I watched CBS Sunday morning, and they did a great piece on West Texas – the area around McDonald Observatory Mm. and how it's basically the last of the dark skies in the continental U S the truly dark skies and the efforts to try and protect that and the importance of light pollution. And I was really excited to see it on such a mainstream news show. So we're going to throw (coughs) that link into the show notes. And I just, recommend to everybody whether you know a lot about the dark sky movement or not go check that out because it's a really important story and it's so wonderful to see cbs tackling a subject so dear to our hearts
0: indeed just as an aside a while back ago i was in barstow california on business and uh for the very first time i saw you know one of the the bands of of the milky way And for the city boy to go ahead and see that and how just absolutely incredible the sky was out there, it was just breathtaking. And I could see why that needs to be protected. And so, yes, the dark sky movement is something we need to support and so on, especially if you're just even if you're a backyard or naked eye astronomer, please go ahead.
2: And don't forget to join the International Dark Sky Association.
0: We will have a link to that also in the show notes. Thank you for pointing that out, Cassie. Appreciate it. Of course. So, we had a little bit of history happen not too long ago on the International Space Station. In fact, just yesterday as we record this, the crew of Expedition 44 became the first human beings to harvest Mm. grown lettuce, if you will, on board the International Space Station and see if they can eat it. And that uh, moment was broadcast live on NASA television, and everybody was like, hey, this is pretty good. And I believe uh, Scott Kelly, who's there for the one-year mission, commented, gee, it tastes like uh, arugula, when it was really supposed to be romaine, if I'm not mistaken, romaine That's lettuce. That's
2: true. I was called out Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and... But it was a red romaine lettuce, so I'm kind of curious if the properties that make it red made it taste a bit more like a rigola.
0: Right. But the the really key part about this is this was grown in space. This is the first time we've actually tried to eat this stuff. And it actually signals something really, really momentous. It means guess what? We can actually grow food while en route somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this this is
2: absolutely key to long-duration missions.
0: Oh, definitely, definitely. And a lot of other articles that have been out there sort of pointed that out. But there was another interesting side effect, Cassie. We kind of talked about this yesterday when we were talking about putting the show together today, about some of the psychological effects that this might have on the crew that actually go ahead and have a moment to tend to something alive and green. And it is it is antiseptic up there. It, you, it, you know, it's, it's a lot of whites and so on. And it, it is an antiseptic environment. And, it and, is.
2: Yeah. And, you know, with... Found in recent years, urban farming has really taken off in America, and there's a lot of programs to get children learning how to farm, children who live in urban environments who have never seen a farm in their lives. And so, what they've found is that by learning to tend plants, it's having this wonderful psychological effect on these children. They're learning the pride of harvesting, they're connecting with the land in a way that they just never had an opportunity to do now in space you have sort of the extreme version of that urban environment you don't you can't there's no community gardens currently or well i guess you could say now there is one
0: yeah and it is the current one right now is about 200 miles up but again this really really opens up the door for a lot Of stuff going on in food production and so on.
2: It does. In fact, a lot of NASA research that, and we'll be talking more about this later, but a lot of NASA research in growing plants in space is already having huge benefits on Earth, including environmentally friendly pesticides, new methods of growing. There's a lot of super advanced research going into how do we make this viable in space that is just as valuable here. Actually turns out to be even more valuable here on our planet and might help us
0: save our planet,
2: which is pretty incredible.
0: That's again, this is this is NASA technology coming home to help you and to help people that may have some issues growing Plants in their area, and I'm look. I'm thinking of very, very arid areas here on Earth that
2: exactly could
0: benefit from this kind of procedure. So, and you know,
2: we've been sending plants to space to figure out how to grow them up there since mm-hmm. before Mir. Yeah, I, you know, there were huge experiments on Mir in this. So this is a very, very long-running area of research and fascinating to
0: watch. Exactly. Uh, I will go ahead and. Kick this over one more time to another ISS story that we're going to have. One, the pressurized module for the Cygnus spacecraft arrived at the Kennedy Space Center today, Tuesday, August 11th. It is being prepared for its upcoming launch in November, so it's another okay. step back. Yep, it's another step back, or a step forward, should I say, for uh, Orbital ATK and its Cygnus program. So, keeping fingers crossed that things can keep going on schedule for that. And we have another cargo vessel that's going to be going up to the International Space Station. This launch is scheduled for August 16th, around 10 p.m. local time in Japan. This is the uh, HT- or H- yes, HTV-5. Uh, which is a cargo vehicle that Japan has been using now for some time. Its first launch to the International Space Station was back in 2009. Uh, It is uh, launched atop a uh, H-2B rocket. It is about 30 feet in length. Its diameter is about 14.4 feet. It can carry up to its launch mass, I'm sorry, is about... uh, 36,000 pounds and it can carry about 12,000 pounds of cargo to the International Space Station and uh, it could stay hooked up to the ISS for about six months. It will also bring some logistics and some supplies up to the International Space Station if all goes well. Also, there is one little experiment, Cassie, that uh, you wanted to talk about. That's being flown on board, and it's uh, well, not exactly, and not exactly one that you would think about. But it's it's quite fascinating if you're kind of into this kind of stuff. So, go ahead, Cassie, take it away. So, this experiment
2: is actually the second one of its kind. It's being run by a company called Suntory, which began as a company that wanted to bring Western-style liquors to Japan. They started in 1899, and they originally made wine, and then they started adding spirits. They're... First distillery opened in 1924, and then they released their first whiskey in 1937. Ever since then, they have been pouring money and effort into research with all kinds of local research universities and facilities into figuring out why different processes make alcohol taste better. Now, the most important, the thing that everybody in the liquor business is most interested in is knowing how mellowing works. Mellowing is the process where they age liquors usually, depending on what kind of liquor, like whiskey is usually aged in oak barrels. And some things are aged in steel to keep them pure. But basically, most mellowing takes place in wood, and there's a chemical interaction between the alcohol and the wood that creates completely unique flavors. We have no idea why this works. At this point, no matter, it, it has been studied like crazy, and we have no idea how this works. <laughs> so back in 2011, the Scotch distillery Ardbeg sent the first whiskey samples to space. They sent compounds called terpenes, which are volatile, unsaturated compounds found in the essential oils of plants, and they're what deliver flavor. Mm-hmm. And They mix those, with which are basically the the main element of the flavor in whiskey as well. They mix them with charred oak, the same ones that they use in their aging casks. And the idea is to find out how the molecules interact with each other. And they stored a control group of vials at Ardbeg's Warehouse 3 so that they could compare them to the samples that went to space. I should also mention that that experiment was with NanoRacks, which is a company I'm a huge fan of, and they launched out of progress, and then they came back back in 2014, and they're being analyzed in a lab in Houston right now. So hopefully pretty soon we'll have a white paper from Dr. Bill Lumsden, who's Ardbeg's in-house chemist, and he's working with researchers in Houston. Meanwhile, Centauri is sending the second experiment up, which is going to be conducted in the Kibo laboratory. And they're setting up five different liquors. They did a bunch of research here on Earth and found they think that being in an environment that in microgravity where they have low convection will increase the mellowing process and make it work better as well. And so the only place where you can get a low convection environment is in this special environment they've created that's going on to Kibo. Hopefully they're doing the same thing as Ardbeg and keeping control samples on earth. And so when they get back, the one set of samples is coming back after a year. The second set is coming back after approximately two years, basically whenever they can get them a ride home again after the two year mark is the impression <laughs> I got.
0: <laughs> okay, so we don't know who, anything could be bringing that thing back. It could be it could be the dragon, it could be heck, it could be CST one hundred. if We hope
2: exactly. It's it's pretty funny to think how many options there will be then. <laughs> yeah,
0: fingers crossed. We'll get into that one by the way, a little later, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is this is quite fascinating it, so, so they really don't understand the mellowing process and how this whole thing works is it?
2: no and it's a lot of this stuff is kind of proprietary like some brands advertise their processes to more or less of an extent but every every whiskey in particular i'm a whiskey drinker and i i drink whiskeys from all over the world and one of the things that makes it most distinct is what kind of barrel it's in and whether it's charred or fresh or if it's like for example bourbon barrels are shipped all over the world for mellowing other whiskeys. (laughs) <laughs> so they take on a little bit of the characteristics of the bourbon that had been aged in the same barrels. So it's an incredible process. And it's been more of an art than a science. And now they want to apply science more and more to that and figure it out.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds like it is quite a, a more of an art form than a science. But I- in order to really, really understand what the heck's going on, it sounds like you really, really need the tools of science to sort of figure all that out and what the chemical mechanics are behind it.
2: Yeah, and we've really pushed this research as far as it can go on Earth, from my understanding. Mm -hmm. So... These experiments in space, it may sound like a silly experiment in some ways to some people. And I can understand that because it's alcohol, <laughs> you know. It's <laughs> it's not this is not your life-saving <laughs> experiment on the ISS. And there's tons of those going on. This is definitely a commercial application, but it's important to understand that that's part of what makes the International Space Station work is the fact that it has commercial customers as well as what you hear about more which is more like university research centers and things like that. And, you know, a lot of universities dedicate a lot of time to researching whiskey, too.
0: <laughs> well, the whole, the whole point, really, is that the International Space Station is a laboratory to conduct any type of science you need to do in microgravity. And this is just one example that, you know, to some might be a little out there, but it's still something viable and still has a commercial application back here on earth so it's it's an indicator that if you two want to go ahead and fly an experiment it doesn't matter who you are you could be in corporate entity you could be a private individual write a proposal get it in there see what happens
2: yeah it's amazing when you start digging through what experiments are going on at any given moment and some of the most important science and some some things that really will you know, contribute in maybe less important ways, but I think our pleasure and our history with alcohol more than justifies keeping that on the cutting edge.
0: Yeah, and just a little plug for an organization that can, if you have an experiment and you don't know where to go and you're having problems trying to weed through, you know, all the red tape to get everything together, there's an organization out there that will help you through that. That's good old cases, so uh, look them up on the web. They'll be more than happy to to go ahead and give you a hand. You
2: might want to spell that for our audience.
0: C-A... Uh, Cassie, you put me on the spot a little bit there, but that's okay. we got the website for you right here. If you're trying to go ahead and contact them, it's www.iss-casis.org. Again, wwwiss ca SIS.org, and they'll be more than happy to go ahead and help you out get your experiment going and flying if you've got a good viable proposal. So give them a shout.
2: That's fantastic. I just love how open to everybody this stuff is. It's, it, I never, before I got this invested in space, I just didn't realize how many layers there really were. And I, I, it makes me more and more impressed with the International Space Station every day because it's easy to see how it can have applications to long space spaceflight and things like that. It's a little harder to see what's going on underneath that. But it's there, and it's changing our lives.
0: Indeed it is. Indeed it is.
2: So you may remember that back on Halloween of 2014, we lost a very important spacecraft, Virgin Galactic's Spaceship 2. Just a couple weeks ago, on July 28th, the NTSB finally held a press conference and released their report on that accident. Jean, do you want to fill us in on some details?
0: Sure, thanks, Cassie. Yeah, the uh, NTSB, or the National Transportation Safety Board, held a public hearing on the findings uh, that they presented as a result of what occurred with the VSS Enterprise, which was owned by Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, and they presented their findings as to what went wrong and so on. Now, if you recall one of the preliminary findings, it seemed to be that the feathers, these large projections at the from the middle of the spacecraft that come out went uh, from the locked position to the unlocked position prematurely. And it seemed like the pilot had performed that act. And a lot of people were kind of uh, shining the, the ugly light uh, on the late uh, Michael Asbury, which I thought was, was quite unfair at that point. Because his there's something that uh, I learned during the hearing there's no such thing as pilot error or at least not in the NTSB's eyes it, it it's sort of like okay yes the pilot made a mistake what made him or her make that mistake was it an error in training was it an error in you know what, what was the pilot overworked was that individual up to speed on certain parts of the aircraft, we didn't know any of that. Well, as as we discovered how this whole thing kind of un- happened and unraveled before our eyes, it was a, a scathing rebuke and what the FAA was doing at the time as far as their oversight was concerned. Scaled composites, the designer of Spaceship Two also got a, a huge, huge, you know, slap on the wrist. And indeed, it looked like some of the ugly light was being shined on the human, but not in the way you, one would expect and it was quite an interesting hearing to listen to. I listened to it, and in fact, if you go through my, my Twitter feed from back then, I was sort of trying to live-tweet what was going on and try to keep keep abreast of what was happening with this, and it, it was just a fascinating, fascinating uh, uh, hearing to, to listen to. Um, I will go through one thing, couple things that kind of surprised me a little bit. One was was learning how the pilots do their simulator runs. And the simulator isn't like what you would think it was if Folks that may have remembered the the shuttle simulator, for instance, it is not like that, even though that some people that were involved in creating the shuttle simulator were also involved in creating the simulator for Spaceship Two. However, one of the things that they didn't do was uh, the pilots did not go in there with full-up pilot gear. They weren't wearing exactly everything that one would wear when they were actually flying the spacecraft. That was one, Uh, which I was like, huh, I didn't know that. And two, you don't experience the sounds and the bumps and all that in this particular simulator like you would in the normal spacecraft. And in some ways, they thought that maybe, just maybe, those sounds and bumps and so on were throwing the pilot off. A little bit. Uh, I will go into one exchange here, which I thought was incredible. This was one of the members talking to the investigators here. This is a member of the panel, uh, gentleman by the name of Robert Sumwalt, and he was not. He was trying to get to the core of the matter as far as getting to some of the the problems that he saw in you know dealing with the human being and and throwing the human being into all of this and well why don't i just read this because it's it's quite fascinating basically he, he goes into why the actual accident happened he said that scaled composites understood in the transonic region if the feather was not locked the aerodynamic loads that pushed the feather up, those forces would exceed the ability of the actuators to hold them down. So they had to remain locked during that transonic region. And that's what happened. Those feathers became deployed and unlocked prematurely. To go on, he said, Scaled understood that very, very well. So the lock had to remain in place during the transonic region to keep the tail down. What was Scaled mitigation's reasoning for making sure that those locks did not get unlocked early. Didn't they say, well, we rely on the pilots to do it correctly? That is a single point of failure. If the pilot is wrong, there is going to be catastrophic results. So why would a single point of failure with a human cause be acceptable? And it really should not be acceptable. The fact is, if you put all of your eggs in one basket, of a human to do this correctly, and I don't mean this to be flippant because I've made plenty of mistakes, but the human will screw up anything if you give him an opportunity, and I don't mean that with any disrespect to the crew. The fact is the mistake was made, but oftentimes a mistake is a symptom of a flawed system, so it's important to anticipate the errors in a design and the error of a tolerance system. You don't go into it believing, oh, no, 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 nobody can make that kind of mistake. You design it so if that mistake will not occur, and then you trap the system to mitigate the error. Again, this was something that scaled composites failed to do. Now, to go through some of the findings here real fast, although the co-pilot made the required call out at the correct point in the flight, he incorrectly unlocked the feather immediately afterward instead of waiting until spaceship 2 reached the required speed of 1.4 Mach. The unlocking of the feather resulted in an uncommitted feather operation. It was the external load on the flap greater than the capability of the feather actuator to hold the assembly in position with those locks disengaged. The copilot was experiencing a high workload as a result of recalling tasks from memory while performing under pressure and with vibration loads He was not recently experienced to, which increased the opportunity for error. So in other words, the pilot and the command pilot in this case, during this part of the flight, are overworked. And there are not a lot of, from what I I recall, there isn't a lot of automation going on. And there are missing some opportunities to go with some automation rather than having the pilots be overworked and overtaxed during this critical point. And it looked like, again, to to go back to some of the things that we're talking about, human factors should be emphasized in design. Operational procedures, hazard analysis, fright flight crew simulator training for the commercial vehicle to reduce the possibility that human error during operations could lead to a catastrophic event. And they say that also scaled composites did not ensure that the pilots correctly understood the risks of unlocking that feather early. Also, they said that uh, considering human error as a potential cause of an uncommitted feather extension on Spaceship Two, scaled composites missed opportunity to identify uh, the design operational requirements that could have mitigated the consequences of human error during a high workload. Again, we're, we're talking about, there's yes, the human can screw up, but there are reasons why the human screws up.
2: Well, and it just seems like if you have the technology to prevent the error prevent the error. Right, exactly.
0: (laughs) Now, Now, the fascinating part about this, too, was the actual statement of cause that they came up with was wordsmithed a little bit. The first shot at the statement of cause read as follows, quote, the National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the pilot's premature unlocking of, of the Spaceship Two feather system as it resulted of time pressure, vibration, and loads he had not recently experienced, which led to the uncommanded unlock of the feather during the transonic region and resulted in the in-flight breakup of the Spaceship Two vehicle. Contributing was the failure to consider the effects of a single human would ever cause the feather to extend uncommittedly and fully inform the pilots of risks of unlocking the Feather system early. Now, the administrator of the NTSB, Christopher Hart, basically said, said the following he wanted the change to this. The National Transportation Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was skilled composites failure to protect against the possibility of a single human error in the environment involving time pressure and unusual g-loads could result in the premature unlocking of the feather at the time that it could result in an uncommanded feather extension causing the in-flight overload and the breakup of the vehicle. Now, Mr. Sumwalt didn't exactly like that because in his eyes, it doesn't mention really, really the human error to the point that it it doesn't really say what exactly happened. So they went into what was supposed to be a 20-minute recess and actually went to 45 and came up with the following statement. And this was the ironclad statement that went out to the press and and so on. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that it is the failure to protect against the possibility that a single human error could result in a catastrophic error to his vehicle. This set the stage for the co-pilot's premature unlocking of the feather system Which led to an uncommanded feather extension and the dynamic overload in flight breakup of the vehicle. So, again, it kind of, they had to wordsmith this thing, but again, it shows that yes, humans are fallible, but there are reasons for humans to be fallible and. This was obviously, uh, th- there was enough to blame to go around for everyone here. The FAA was basically trashed for their oversight. And Scaled Composites, who designed the vehicle, was also, rightly so, given a good you know thrashing for their design of the vehicle. So uh, hopefully Virgin Galactic will go ahead, go forward, take what they've learned from this, and fix the problems, and you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, we'll see uh, Spaceship Two fly again.
2: Well, I certainly hope so. And meanwhile, we're having a little different kind of problem on the other side of commercial space.
0: Oy, are we ever. Thanks, Cassie. Again, this was a uh, memo that was sent to Congress by NASA Administrator Charles Bolden, and it was really, really, well, He basically gave them a a, a bit of a rebuke here by saying, hey, guys, you're not funding commercial crew properly. I'll just read this paragraph. I'm writing to inform you that NASA once again has modified its current contract with the Russian government to to meet America's requirements for crew transportation services. Under this contract modification, the cost of these services to the U.S. taxpayer will be $490 million. Okay boys and girls that means now through now through 2019 with this extension you the American taxpayer are going to pay I hope you're sitting down for this 81 million dollars a seat to Russia to send our crew to the international space station rather than Congress going ahead and taking that 490 million dollars and giving it to the commercial crew program and if that makes your brain just seize up for a moment? It made mine. Because here's the deal. We've already told the Department of Defense that you can't go ahead and allocate $300 million dollars and give it to Russia to buy the RD-180 engine for the Atlas V. You can't do that past 2019. Sorry, too bad. We don't want you giving any more money to Vladimir Putin and all this other stuff. Okay, fine. Yes, but NASA, it's okay for you to go ahead and give $490 million dollars to the Russians to launch crew to the International Space Station and not American industry who's currently building two new spacecraft. One, the Crew Dragon being built by SpaceX and two, the CST-100 built by Boeing that are set and ready to go to ferry crew to the International Space Station or at least to try to get that going by at least 2017 or the end of 2017. Not for anything, boys and girls, am I kind of missing something somewhere?
2: Basically, the historic budget shortfalls for this program have painted us into a corner. We have to send astronauts to the space station, and yeah, we should be giving this money to these companies, but it's a problem that's been compounding itself each successive year.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, Eric Berger of the Houston Chronicle, and we're going to include his article in the show notes here. He essentially presented the same argument, and I was, urgh. we were, were, we're both on the same page here. But he he makes an interest, another interesting proposition here too. He looks at that at the space launch system and says okay fine we're we're funding that to the tune I believe he quotes the article in the article here of 1.9 billion dollars and I believe NASA requested 1.36 billion dollars so we're actually overfunding SLS and from what uh, Eric Berger reports.
2: To the tune of, of almost $600 million. Right. That's clear.
0: Right. And, <laughs> and, and what Eric Berger reports is SLS seems to be doing fine. It's chugging along. It's meeting its deadlines. There there really isn't a, a budget shortfall there. So we're, we're, we're kind of wondering why this is going on. I, I'm not going to play politics here, but I guess there, there there's probably something like that going on. But I, what I don't like is the fact that, for some reason or other, some members in Congress are pitting both programs against each other, and I think that's the wrong thing to take. Both of these programs are of value. Both of these programs the United States needs right now. SLS has got some really good things up its sleeve as far as helping planetary missions going forward. We'll get into that on a later show, but... Again, these two programs should not be pitted against each other. Well, they're
2: designed to fulfill different requirements. We have two extremely different human spaceflight needs. These programs are designed to fulfill very, very different requirements. And we need both of them to be supported equally. I'm not saying they need exactly the same budget, but they need to be funded... NASA understands how much money they need to do things. Right (laughs) When they ask for an amount, there's a reason. I mean, if you look at the budget process at NASA, it goes through so many layers and levels. It's been vetted like crazy. They know what they need. And, of course, Congress loves to tinker with everything. But we have this problem where politicians who don't necessarily really understand what NASA does are making these decisions on what area of NASA gets funded. And the thing is, you would think logically that an area that's particularly strong at creating new jobs, excellent new jobs at that, and that's supporting American businesses would be more of a priority to them.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we're going to have an, uh, this week, I think, there's there's going to be an engine test of uh, one of the SLS main engines, which is the RS-25, the old space shuttle engine, but slightly modified. And the backstop on this one, it looks like the only only tripping point in the whole system right now is Orion, and it's not the Orion capsule. It's actually the Orion service module, in which we're dependent on ESA to go ahead and, and bring forward. And that right now is the only showstopper in the works, because apparently they're having some problems over over there. They're, the schedule is kind of kerfuffled over there, and... They're trying to get that back on track. But that's the only stopping point for Orion right now. Orion is fine. SLS seems to be chugging along just fine. They seem to be robustly funded. But the Congress, I just don't get it. Why the devil are they spending $490 million and giving that to Russia rather than spending that $490 million on American industry? Somebody please tell me where I'm wrong.
2: I feel like it's one of those the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing kind of situations because you have to remember there's a difference between decisions that are made in committees and decisions that are made with, you know, with other committees and with all of the Senate or with all of the House. And so it's kind of this crazy situation where it was John McCain as the head of his committee that came up with this, you can't buy rocket engines from the Russians anymore. And so there's this weird disconnect between what's going on inside this one body.
0: Yeah. I don't see the difference. Somebody tell me what the difference is. Russia. Well, you're trying to to apply
2: logic to politics. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I know it just seems laughable, <laughs> silly me. Oh boy! But the the sad the the sad takeaway here is the American people are spending money on another country where they really should be spending it on their own industry, and that that's something that that I just I'm just I, I just can't come to grips with. My only only suggestion is this: Congress, please stop playing politics with these two programs they're both worthy of of attention they're both worthy of funding and we need both of them now amen on that happy note cassie you've got an interesting little spin-off you want to go ahead and throw at us today so in our in our ongoing series of of what nasa's done for you lately so why don't we go ahead and throw that over to you and and let's talk about that
2: Sure. I decided to go along with the theme of growing plants in space because I stumbled across a really interesting NASA spinoff, and it goes by several names. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about its development because it's just recently to market. You know, we were talking about the problems with growing plants in space earlier, and it turns out there's two sort of uh, competing notions going on. One is astronauts are super, super busy. They have packed schedules. They can't be watching their plants. They need as much plant care as possible to be automated. So while there can be psychological benefits to tending plants, they also only have so much time in a day. And if you're anything like me, you know exactly how that goes because I keep trying to <laughs> plants and they take too much attention. So it's a big problem in growing you know a large enough garden for a long duration flight so as well as when you're talking about say growing plants on mars in a colony type of type of situation so the more we can automate the process the better the other thing is water is a huge problem both on earth and in space it's heavy it takes up a lot of storage on earth we're starting to run out of it in certain parts of our country for example <laughs> and Agriculture is the worst user of water. We use incredible amounts of water across our farms. And we've been measuring this, but we've been measuring moisture in the soil and temperature of the leaves and trying to figure out how to tell when a plant actually needs water in order to not only cut down on water consumption, but on power consumption to get the water to the fields, which I had no idea. They use so much power. It's absolutely terrifying. And so... We needed a better way to mm-hmm. tell when plants are actually thirsty. NASA was particularly interested in this because obviously water, super scarce resource mm-hmm. in spaceflight. So there was a graduate student, actually a doctoral candidate, named Hans Dieter Seelig, and he was at University of Colorado Boulder. Which has a program that it's a NASA Research Partnership Center that's within the Aerospace Engineering and Sciences Department. And they specialize in microgravity research and developing hardware and systems to support said research. Mm-hmm. They signed a Space Act agreement with NASA in 2008 to manifest experiments and hardware to the national lab on the ISS, and they also sent a lot of things on the space shuttles. Now they work with other international companies to get payloads up, and they basically facilitate research in microgravity, and they prepare experiments to go up. And they have this wonderful academic program where students in aerospace engineering at UC Boulder, can apply f- to be a research assistant at BioServe, and they get to work hands-on with everything from the engineering behind the design of experiments, figuring out how they're going to work, even down to figuring out how to pack them to go to space. So it's a wonderful opportunity, one of the best in the country for learning about all of this stuff. And there was a student there, Hans Dieter Seelig, who was a PhD candidate at the time, This was the early 2000s, and he started working under a cooperative agreement with NASA through the Space Product Development Office at Marshall. And he was studying how leaves contract and their uh, thickness changes as a plant gets thirsty. So he developed a sensor, a tiny little sensor. The original was about an inch by a half inch and they've gotten smaller since then. And it's light enough for most plants. And it's just a tiny little clip that you clip onto leaves and it transmits a message when the leaves contract that the plant needs more water. Simple, right? Not really, but it sounds like a simple plan, right? And so this was what his thesis was about. And then when he got his doctorate in 2005, together with BioServe and UC Boulder, he optioned his invention to a local business called House, which specializes in cutting-edge agribiotechnology, technology, and they have a history of partnering with Bioserve and with NASA. They are particularly strong in aeroponics, which is one of the systems that's showing to be a possibility for long duration spaceflight. And so they've had a long relationship with them. They've worked with also worked with the USDA, the National Science Foundation, the U.S. Forest Service, universities. So they really are one of the best companies in agrobiotechnology. Their founder, Richard Stoner, saw the potential in this plant sensor and obtained the rights to continue development and hired Selig as an investigator. And they started working as partners they got a grant from the NSF and their first big test involved clipping these on and then running wires to a computer so they had to run miles and miles of wires through all these fields <laughs> and but, wow yeah, right?
0: <laughs> it's quite Herculean task yes
2: <laughs> anybody who's ever wired a big system can appreciate that I'm sure <laughs> oh yeah I can wow <laughs> But the uh, the ultimate goal was to create something that could transmit data wirelessly about how the plant was doing water wise and that eventually did develop that version and it's now for sale actually and they also are hoping they it was m- mostly used for years for research and so it's helped them understand the relationship between soil moisture and Plant moisture, which are it turns out, are very different things, according to Richard Stoner. Mm-hmm. Research has determined that the plant uptakes the water when the plant wants to, not when the farmer thinks the plants should be watered. So all these old systems. Again, we are we talked earlier about art versus science. Watering plants has always been sort of an art until Mm -hmm. recently. Farmers swear that they can tell when their plants need water. And traditionally, there are certain times of the year that you make sure to water certain dates, depending on your region. None of that is effective. We end up wasting, I saw figures as high as we end up wasting about 40% of the water that's used in irrigation. Because now we do have better technology. We have soil moisture sensors and, as I said, temperature sensors for leaves. And we also use satellite data to look at soil moisture. You would think we'd have a better idea of this, but it turns out we don't. It turns out when plants actually drink is very different from when the soil is dry. (laughs) Now in space, obviously it could save time, save water, save energy, but the same thing applies on earth. And the important thing is, it could really keep us from wasting as much as we do. Like you hear about in California how the almonds are drinking all the water. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of technology that could make sure that every drop that's delivered to a plant is a drop that that plant wants. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm. I'm just thinking too. If this system gets really, really mature and so on, I'm wondering what that might do for, let's like say the. Because here in New Jersey, we've got local farmers that are just basically hanging by a thread. I'm just wondering if if this finally comes to fruition and it's out there and available for the local farmer, what that might isn't. be able to do. It is okay. Yeah. Cool.
2: It just it just recently came to market. And I was actually looking at them. They start at two hundred and eighty nine dollars for a little sensor. And wow, that's, that's you only need one sensor per like area or plant type, depending on your farm's requirements.
0: And and how do you know the distance that one sensor takes up? Is how many acres or how many one acre is it? One acre, two acres, well, half acre? You know what? That,
2: that's the thing. It depends a lot on what kind of crops you're growing.
0: Okay. So it's, it's like if you were growing corn, there'd be one configuration. If you were growing wheat, it'd be another configuration and so on down the line.
2: Right. right. And also like factors such as how hilly your land is. Right. Or, you know, so there's a lot of parameters to take into consideration, but you don't need to use that many per area. And... It's amazing because they have these little monitors you can walk around and read directly off the sensors. They have software that can, you know, explain what all of the data means. And the grand hope is that this will work with systems because there are systems being developed. This will work with systems that will basically allow a plant to ask for water and it will be delivered water. Wow. Without human intervention.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is. I'm. I'm just thinking. All this technology combined with the satellite technology, uh, even the local farmer will now have unlimited resources to go ahead and make sure that he he or she is successful. And that's that's quite a quite a deal. So this this is really really cool.
2: It's super exciting because, of course, when you talk about growing food, it's this is more than just employing people and money and cool things. This is. Uh, the more we can grow food, the more we can feed everybody.
0: That's just it. The U.S. is sort of the breadbasket for the world, and hmm. if we can, we can increase production and, and really help some of these local farmers out too. Uh, so be it. And. and-,
2: and- the entire West is out of water. Exactly. We're going, going to be very soon. Colorado spends millions of dollars using water from the rivers that run through it, because sometimes they don't let enough go through to the next state. And they all have these agreements on that. It's So it actually also has an effect on politics. It affects everything. Water usage is maybe the most pressing issue in America. If you really look at it hard. And so that's scary. And this is something that can help.
0: Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Cassie, and thanks. thanks so much for bringing that to our attention. This, this, that oh. was rather cool.
2: And one more thing I'd like to mention sure. is Seelig the inventor. He continued working with House to bring this to market and he's now also a professor of electrical engineering at the University of Applied Sciences in Dresden and he's still publishing papers on leaf thickness. His most recent one came out in 2015.
0: That's that's something else. I'm I'm still trying to get over the plant going. Hey dad, can I have a drink of water? <laughs> you know, that's 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 intriguing, but it but, but it actually does. And and it's it, it's it, it's really just a matter of it.
2: developing the software now we have the systems in place
0: that so. is that's something else again cassie this is intriguing thanks so much for bringing this over thank you so I guess that uh, that goes ahead and wraps up another fun filled episode for talk uh, talking space. Uh, I was good I was kind of wondering how this was going to work out with just two of us, but gosh, this was a fun episode i had a, I had a blast I
2: did too. I just hope our
0: listeners do too yeah and in, indeed, I hope you guys had as much fun as uh, as we did tonight uh Cassie, thanks for so much for uh soldiering through this uh this dynamic duo episode here tonight. I appreciate it.
2: Oh, thank you. This was a great time. Uh, although I can't wait to have the whole gang back next time.
0: Oh, that makes that makes two of us. That makes two of us. So for Cat Robeson, Mark Riderman, Sawyer Rosenstein, I'm Jean McCulka. Hey, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Talking Space.
1: Some skeptics say we should keep funds at bay until we have fed everyone. But we produce more food than ever before because of what NASA has done. Nearly every invention created for space on Earth has found a useful place. Saving some lives and improving many more like we've never seen before. So let's hold a bake sale for NASA. Show our love for a program that actually works. The cookies are sure to be out of this world. We could even have Astros as clerks. Give folks a chance to learn firsthand why do we need these adventures in space. How it affects them directly at home and the